Welcome to the podcast dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. Ask a cycling coach podcast presented by trainer road today. We're going to talk about how pros pace. Cause I have two pros with me, Ivy from squid bikes. Ivy Adrain, And we also have with us rocket sloth co's Ryan Standish. We're also going to talk about when you take drugs to sleep, legal drugs, y'all. Um, uh, or I guess illegal drugs too. I don't know <laughs> when you take drugs to sleep. What state, what state are you in? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> When you take drugs to sleep, if that ends up messing things up for you, and we're just going to talk about anecdote here and, and, you know, reference loosely some scientific research here, but really just talk about anecdote and what these pro athletes have experienced and what they do since they race so much more than most of us. And then we're also going to do a section of cycling trivia, the first one ever on the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast, and you can play along at home. So it's going to be a lot of fun, but we have a lot of other questions to answer. Let's just get straight into Danielle's. Danielle says, I really appreciate the conversation last week about disordered eating. It really struck a chord with me. I feel like I've been chronically eating in a calorie deficit. I noticed a lot more room in the waist of my jeans, generally low on energy, slow to recover from workouts. And I want to make some changes. I spoke with a sports dietitian earlier this year about general plate composition, etc., but I still feel like I'm struggling with macros and eating enough outside of training. I'm hesitant to use calorie counters and scales due to a history of disordered eating. So do you have any tips for tracking macros that don't boil down to just use my fitness pal? And why does eating enough have to be so fraught? She says, thanks for having so many difficult conversations about food on the podcast recently. I appreciate everyone's openness and vulnerability. Uh, Ivy, can you kick us off on this one? Yeah, for sure. Um, I can totally relate to hearing just use my fitness pal when trying to eat enough, this is a struggle that I've shared with Danielle and trying to eat enough that I've talked about pretty candidly on the podcast before. And I finally feel like I'm getting closer to eating enough, um, which is crazy. That seems like the opposite problem that most cyclists have, but it is, um, a very real problem that, uh, a lot of athletes encounter. Um, and so for me or for many people with a history of disordered eating, um, it may mean that when you start counting calories to make sure you're getting enough or fixating on what you're getting to make sure you're checking boxes, you can really easily redirect that fixation on food um, in a, in just a different way. So before when you're fixating on it, you know, in a from a disordered eating standpoint of thinking about food as a bad thing or um, feeling like shame around what you're eating or wondering if you're eating too much, you can just totally redirect that as soon as you start fixating on how much is in this. Did I get enough this? Like how many grams of what is in what? Um, It's a really slippery slope um, and pretty dangerous. And so, um, Danielle, I'm really glad you saw a sports nutritionist. That's awesome. Um, But you might also need um, to see like a counselor that specializes in disordered eating to make a plan about what it can look like to in a healthy way, make sure you're getting enough food because everyone's, everyone's experience is different in addressing and healing from disordered eating, but I can share some things that worked for me or helped me. And in my experience, I just had to reframe my entire relationship with food and it took years and years and years. Um, but my goals for eating enough became much broader than just trying to hit a calorie mark. And that prevented me from fixating on, um, you know, checking all these super finite boxes when in reality getting close enough was still helping me in that process. Um, and then it prevented me from slipping back into disordered eating habits. So, um, for me, those like smaller or kind of broader goals looked like 
eating um, every X number of hours. So um, when I can't eat enough, it's because I like forget to eat, um, which is crazy. Like everyone is starving all the time. But like when something like when you have a bad relationship with food, something changes in your mind and you like don't listen to signals that your body is hungry. And if you do it for long enough, you just like forget to eat or you don't hear that you need to eat and you forget to. And all of a sudden it's like two o'clock and you haven't eaten anything. This happened to me on accident a few days ago. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you can even set a timer if you have to. That's what I I do when I know that I'm going to have, um, a busier full day and I need help remembering to eat often. I set a timer on my phone for every few hours to like get up and eat. Um, I uh, try to avoid really big gaps between meals because, um, it's harder for me personally to get really full and or fuel, you know, um, to eat really big meals. So it's not like if I take a big time between meals, I'm going to make up for a big calorie deficit by eating an enormous meal. I have a hard time doing that. Like not psychologically, like I, it's hard to eat like an enormous uh, meal, you know, like the Chipotle burritos, the like <laughs> 2000 calorie enormous like Goliath burritos. Like I don't think I've eaten one of those ever like in one sitting like this is harder for some for folks that struggle meeting calorie marks to eat really big meals like that so try to avoid big gas between meals and then finally um i have someone that helps me get stoked about eating a lot of food like it sounds so silly but just like how like john when you and i like set power records we like text each other like hey man like you have someone (laughs) to get like stoked about with you about a success and I have someone like that with food that knows that I'm struggling and also knows how directly my performance is improved when I eat a lot, like even just in daily workouts. And it's um, my squid team manager and it's fun to like, you know, three or four passes. And I'm like, dude, listen how much I ate today. And he's he's like, heck yeah, you're going to crush you're going to crush the race this weekend. You know, like have someone that gets stoked with you about celebrate eating celebrating eating and it makes you more excited about eating too awesome great yeah, tips that's a lot <laughs> sorry super actionable <laughs> yeah. right guys Mine... like i don't know what you're talking about i can eat all day every day <laughs> <laughs> i don't know how to say that in a <laughs> in a good way <laughs> well ryan actually yes. have, i'm sure that you've like uh i'm sure you've probably erred on 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 the shy side just being a pro athlete I'm sure you've not been immune to the pressure to like not eat enough and, or make sure that you're light and everything else. How how have you reckoned with all that? I think, well, I guess my biggest, like I did go through in college, I was like, I need to be 150 pounds so that I can keep up with everybody and did Mm. like, don't know if I even actually ever got close because I usually sit around 165. Um, And once I got, like, I got under 160 and was like, got sick, had no power, like, couldn't, couldn't go for a two hour ride. I was like, "Mm, that wasn't it. I need to uh, get back to eating pizza and ramen and (laughs) (laughs) whatever else we ate in in college. Um, But I think since, since then I haven't had a big desire to to lose weight or to be like if i'm if i'm going to try and lose weight it'll be like three pounds not 15 
to get like just a, that little bit into the into the season you usually get down to like 162 or 163 but nothing where i'm going for for weeks on end um trying to trying to do it with food like i think it it would be for me it makes more sense to increase volume in training to try and lose a little bit of weight than than to just cut food out because <laughs> i really enjoy it eating food. Yeah. It's kind of that saying of like, uh, and I, and I don't, I understand the intention of it, but I don't like the product or what it ends up creating of that whole, like, like, uh, whether it's like win in the kitchen or lose, like, like lose weight in the kitchen, something like that. I, Mm. I, I don't know the exact saying, but I'm sure we've all heard permutations of it. Um, and the, the complete I've, I've, found over and over personally and with other athletes that I've seen and, 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 and work with it's when they end up optimizing their body composition, composition, and remember optimizing means optimal for performance. It doesn't mean optimal for aesthetics. It doesn't mean optimal for, to fit into a narrative. It just means where you feel and perform your best. And when athletes get there, it's if there has been weight loss, it's because they've enabled themselves to train more and their body as a result has optimized itself to perform at that level. Like it's not mm-hmm. a, I think there's this kind of conception that we, we, we move these two levers, it's power and weight, and we can directly focus on one or of them. And then we can influence this equation. And then as a result, it will work out just great. And our performance will stay the same. And typically it's focused on the food side there's a lot of athletes that starve themselves or they don't eat enough and they're terrified that if they do eat more then they, you know, it'll cause them to gain weight. Uh, but nourishment is a different thing. And I think that Ivy's set a great example on the podcast of sharing that openly about how she's struggled with under eating. And it was simply in many cases, because like you said, you forget, like you just, it's not a priority. And because of the relationship that you have with food, like you said, the signals don't, don't, they aren't received the same. Um, so I think that for athletes focusing on nourishment and focusing on enabling yourself to train more, as long as your life can sustain, you know, additional training volume. But if you nourish yourself to be able to train more in almost every situation, athletes end up performing better. Uh, they end mm-hmm. up feeling better too off the bike. Um, so like you said, Ryan, you know, it's in college that just meant going, like making sure that you were eating more. Uh, instead of just trying to deprive yourself. It's a trick that it's a balance that we all fall into and our brains are really good at tricking us into taking the wrong approach. You know, this is something that works for a lot of athletes. Like I know people that weigh food and, you know, look very closely at how many grams of what they're getting per day. Um, but in the scope of like a normal athlete, when I think about people that have jobs and families, um, apart from just making sure you're being nourished and not concerting energy in the wrong areas. Like this is something that you don't, doesn't need to be, you know, it's one of those things that some cyclists think is the key to getting them faster, right? Like this is the thing. If I just have this much calorie deficit and if if I just like hit these marks and just like control my food in this way, I'll be leaner and faster and this is the secret and it's, it's not like, especially in the scope of a normal person that if you, if you got an hour more of sleep 
And if you maybe ate like a couple hundred more calories, like that would be the difference for you. You know, I think like we look at pro athletes that, um, who is it that would troll us on Instagram? Like a pro tour guy that would post like a tiny toast and be like, race day, LOL. And you're like, what? Like, like we know it's a joke but like Froome dads kind of are did watching that, remember like when Froome like posted mid tour that that like toast him. with like yeah. uh, avocado and that was like uh and that was Toast-gate. it <laughs> like that, that was yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah come on he's, yeah he's messing with everybody yeah but you yeah. know i'm sure a lot of like dads and amateur cyclists didn't know that and um mm-hmm. you know so in in the in the scope of things that will make you faster, um, it's just easy to forget that things like um, calories and fixating on it and how much energy that takes and how damaging it can be. Like it's not really it's not the move versus something like recovery and sleep and nourishment. Yeah, it's not sustainable for me to do the measuring thing. I like uh, it. Me just either. ends up same for you, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it I ends think up it, just causing extra stress. Extra stress and maybe takes your focus away from the actual training. And when you start to hyperfixate on the food, it's like yes, you need you do need the food, but you also have to be able to do the training. <laughs> right. And the the riding the bike part is I can't say more important because the food part is important too, but um, I think taking the focus away from the bike riding and putting that, that stress and that energy into the food is probably not, uh, not the ideal balance for, for that. Yeah. One thing that I do for like macro tracking without macro tracking is I try to make sure. So we've mentioned this before on the podcast about like some basic, simple principles of like favoring things like whole grains uh, and trying to find as many different colors of a whole grain as possible. It sounds like really kind of simple and there might be like a dietitian that hears this and is really upset at me saying this. I apologize if so. Um, (laughs) what I'm trying to get at here is just eating a variety of different things and then prioritizing things that make your body feel good. Um, so uh, what I try to do is, and it's funny, like whenever we're eating dinner with our son, and we have like a lot of different colors on our plate. Like my wife and I won't shut up about how many colors are on the plate and how great that is. <laughs> like, we're like, look I feel at all like these my colors. parents did that too. Really? <laughs> like we yeah. have all the colors. <laughs> and when, and when our son like eats a lot, we're like, like, uh, awesome job. Do you feel like energized? Do you feel like you, like you're fueled up? And then he usually does like really fast laps around the house. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and that's, yeah, yeah. So he gets Zooms, zoom easy. Yeah. <laughs> But the it's like really basic principles of if I focus on whole grains first, that typically ends up taking care of like a lot of macro concerns that per, that you might measure otherwise. And mm-hmm. then when I do that, and then I just try to make sure there's a lot of different colors, I'm getting a lot of micronutrients that I wouldn't be getting otherwise through that. Um, it usually forces me into involving greens where I might not. That sort of that sort of thing. So th- that's kind of like an easy way that I do it. And I love looking at like a beautiful bowl or plate of food that has a lot of color in it. And that's like, uh, that's, so that's a simple thing that I do where I just focus on whole grains and getting a variety of those and getting a lot of color. 
that might help Danielle. Yeah, that may be something you've already tried and, but just the same, that's what one thing that works for me. So, uh, Ryan or Ivy, do you have anything else to add for Danielle's? Um, I don't know specifically for, for Danielle, but I, um, in college I studied exercise physiology and had a nutrition class that, uh, the professor Greg Rhodes said, like, if there's one thing you, that I need you to remember from this class. It's the three, the three most important things of variety, balance, and moderation. If you don't remember anything else from this class, like take that away. And sure enough, that's the only thing I remember from, <laughs> from nutrition class. <laughs> but um, job done. <laughs> but just job done. And I think it, it plays into what you were saying, Jonathan, about having um, like you have your variety of food. If you make a, a rainbow on your plate, that's good variety. And you have that also adds the balance between um, the carbs and the veggies and the if you eat meat, then the meat as well. The and dino nuggies and the, the dino nuggies, yeah. exactly. The <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> um, and then moderation too. Like it's not, it's not the end of the world to eat ice cream for dessert or to eat a frozen pizza, but you shouldn't do it every night. But it's not. <laughs> it's not the end of the world if you do. Just like, just like you shouldn't need any specific like thing. Oh, sorry, Ryan. <laughs> that, uh, that was that was all I had. To that comment, though, about like the frozen pizza, just like you shouldn't eat any specific thing every night, right? Like your body really thrives on variety. That's like one mm-hmm. of the things that Matt Fitzgerald talks about in his book with the endurance diet is that the life of professional athletes, if you look at their nutrition log, the ones that he has studied – it isn't completely devoid of what people would would categorize as unhealthy foods or you know insert whatever other descriptor they have those do they do do they have and then just as they have healthy food and one of the key things is that they evolve and rotate through and they have a diet that's that's constantly and when i say diet i mean what they're taking in not constriction they're taking in a variety of things all the time. And it's never something where it's just like every day my breakfast is this or every day something is this. And that's tricky for a lot of us. <laughs> he didn't busy. study Keegan. Yeah. <laughs> he did not study Keegan. <laughs> that's for sure. That's uh, tricky for a lot of us that are really busy because you find like a, a meal that you really like and gives you good energy and it's easy to make. And it's like awesome. Like I have one variable that is now a control. Like I I don't have to change it. And that's at least how I thrive. I love to have those consistencies and the same thing that I eat all the time. So that's one of my biggest challenges is making sure that I'm changing it up enough. Your body really likes that. So, uh, hopefully that was helpful, Danielle. And for anybody else, uh, Ryan, we went on Instagram. We said that we were going to have you on the podcast. We got a lot of different questions. I picked a handful of them. We're going to do a rapid fire. Are you ready for it? Here we go. Yeah. I might be ready. We'll see. All right. I, I'm going to ask you the first one. Are octodogs good for you? <laughs> uh, does a bear poop in the woods? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well done. <laughs> Nicely censored. I like it. Yeah. If you don't know what octodogs are, go follow Ryan on Instagram, Ryan Standish, and you'll find all, out all about it. Uh, if riding I've, the fire road <laughs> or wide trails, do I pick a line and stick with it or do I chase the smoothest route? Uh, descending or climbing? Let's do both. First descending, then climbing. Descending, pick one and stick with it. 
hang on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> climbing, you want to be on the probably on the smoothest or with the most traction. Nice. So uh, next weave around, paper I boy it. <laughs> I'm going to try to mix these in, alternate them. Next one. How much beer is part of your normal diet? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of one or two a day. Yes. Awesome. Beers, normal beers. Thank God. I was, I was like, I need to be validated right now. Please go on, Ryan. <laughs> we're, we're proud of the club. Uh, next one. Well, are we going to see you back in Australia racing? Maybe Cape to Cape. I hope so. Now that now that COVID's over, I can get hopefully get back. Not sure about Cape to Cape, but maybe the Artway Odyssey. For those, and where are you from that. in Australia? For people to, I grew up in Alice Springs, awesome. which is hot in place, the middle. Right? It's hot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's not much out there, but good mountain biking. So nice. Uh, do jorts make your FTP higher or make you faster? Uh, probably not. <laughs> dreams crushed Uh, i just heard it around the world they make you a lot cooler though (laughs) (laughs) nice insert that scene when like obi-wan says i just heard like i just felt a disturbance in the force like when you just (laughs) said that (laughs) yeah like every like like a million voices cried out in terror (laughs) exactly right exactly uh road or mountain bike shoes for gravel racing and why uh depends usually usually road um then the mountain bike ones if if there's going to be if it's more technical or there's a climb that no one's ever made it up then don't really want to be running in road shoes but most of the time road shoes every now and why why do you select the road shoes i feel like they're a little bit stiffer I don't know. Mm. The being they just feel more solid, more locked in. Um are they more aero, maybe? That's not yeah. why I do it. Probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I think question. I'm more comfortable oh, on the in the road shoes than the mountain bike shoes, especially for like eight, nine hours or ten. Yeah. I think the road sure. shoes are just a little more comfortable. Uh, next question is what's a guy got to do? And this one's from Ben Delaney, Ben, uh, good to have you listening. What's a guy got to do to get a rocket sloth sticker? Rocketslothco.com. There we go. That's Ryan's brand. <laughs> uh, you uh, you know I, how to get a hold of me, uh, Ben. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ivy and I forgot to wear our hats today. We should have done that. Um, I know I feel I should have sent out a memo. Oh, it's sorry. my favorite dad hat. I wear it all the time. <laughs> so it's like my weekend hat. Uh, uh Okay, uh, next one that we should ask, where did you get that super rad jean style kit, your denim kit? Super rad denim kit. Uh, that's yeah. through Hyperthreads, which is a local kit company here in Utah. Um, we've got kind of working on next year too. Ooh, be, nice. Don't know how to I'm, go better, but... Full cheetah. <laughs> full try. cheetah. Full cheetah. Full cheetah. Yeah. Full cheetah and denim. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how do we avoid cramps and long races? Ooh, I don't. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> Almost every like- single one. But I do have, uh, like, I think Keegan does it too. little, like, crystallized ginger that... Mm. I don't know if there's actually any science behind it, 
but it does make the cramp, like if you just chew on a piece of that, uh, it makes the cramps go away for like 20 minutes. Yeah, like so you have to have s- enough to get through. <laughs> to <finish>. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a similar to theory to hot sauce or pickle juice <clears throat> or anything else that's like a really strong flavor distracts the nervous system. I think a bit. that's yeah. the that's the theory. Um, so the ginger is pretty inconsistent. Sometimes it's spicy, sometimes it's not. Uh, but I do need to see, like do some playing around with the hot sauce thing. Pickle juice doesn't work for me, so. You could use El um, Yucateco, bring a little, exactly. tiny little, like a bandolier of hot little sauce. Little sample, sample bottle. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine just like a belt of hot sauce that Ryan has <laughs> and he takes off. It'd <laughs> <laughs> uh, be amazing. Uh, I'll, I'll have to work on that for, for next year. Maybe right. I'll come up with a recipe, make my own. Mm-hmm. Ooh. This next yeah. one, who makes the best pancakes? You were roommates oh. with Keegan Swenson, who like rates pancakes on Instagram. That's his thing. So that's his thing. And he may, like back to the diet thing. He eats pancakes every single day of the year, pretty much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ooh, I think I have to think back to you. I think it was Soldier Hall a couple of years ago when you came out and stayed. At, I think Keegan was out of town. You stayed at his house, and Ivy was there too. Yeah, I was I think there we were also. All there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sorry. You didn't okay. make the pancakes though. <laughs> no, I didn't. I did wake uh, up though and and John was done making pancakes and I was like, "Where's my pancake?" and he rushed in the kitchen and made me another one. He's like, "I'm so sorry." <laughs> so yeah, I think John topped Ooh. Keegan's pancakes. He had some ritual <laughs> chocolate. And he does them there. Like- it was John does them like uh, a little undercooked too. Mm. A little like kind of medium rare. Uh, uh, medium rare. <laughs> maybe even maybe even more rare than medium rare. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's good. Yeah. That feels really I'd never, good. I'd uh, never done that before. I'd never yeah. had an undercooked pancake. But yeah, I, I think you did pretty it. well in that race too, right? Maybe. I, so. I don't remember. It was too I know long you ago. had at least a very strong like portion of that race. Cause I was cheering for you like crazy. Oh, that was the one I had to borrow your seat too. Your yeah. Seat, your seat post <laughs> That's right. And it was like, yeah, the wrong I did have setback. some weird cramps, but I read pretty strong. <laughs> Didn't have any that was, ginger. That was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And then last question, last rapid fire. What's your off season going to look like this year? Also very, very big fan. They state, uh, Probably, well, depending how much it snows in the next week, uh, hopefully do some dirt biking um, and then get down to single speed cyclocross worlds in Durango, which is in two weeks from this weekend. And then I think that might be it. Don't have a whole lot, don't have a whole lot planned. Um, And then start trying to get into it for next year. But That'll look a little different too. I think I have some, maybe some cross country skate skiing planned for the winter, maybe a little bike packing trip with Lauren uh, in December. We go down to the desert for Aww. a little bike packing action. So rad. Yeah. Cool. Sweet. I like it. Uh, Tim's question. We're out of the rapid fire now. Tim says, okay. uh, I have a couple of rapid fire questions for the crew. Oh, shoot. Never mind. <laughs> We're <laughs> back. Right back in. Uh, from Tim. So this is for all of us, not just Ryan. Excluding weight training, what form of cross training is best for a cyclist? 
rowing, running, swimming, or some team-based aerobic sport like basketball or soccer. Ivy, what say you? I vote skate skiing, um, Nordic skiing, but not, not classic where you're just shuffling forward. Um, I find skate skiing to be pretty dynamic, um, full body recruitment. I think like the lateral motion too is really good for us as cyclists, um, that tend to do a lot of just forward motion stuff. And, uh, for me, maybe, maybe it's because of my ability level in, you know, things like rowing and running and skiing, but it's way easier for me to get into, into the red, into VO2 max with skate skiing, like really quickly. So I think it's better. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Ryan? I'm with you on the skate skiing. <laughs> yes. I think, I think rowing is, is a good, good thing to do as well. Um, because it is similar to skate skiing, the full, full body recruitment running. I just can't get into, into it. <laughs> I think it's breaking, good, but breaking man, my heart. Just, like <laughs> my knees always hurt. I always try to run too much like mm. the first week. So I just end up sore and that's, that's my experience running. Yeah. Like our bodies so. can't catch up to where our lungs are with like running your, to need a yeah, good workout. Your cardio fitness is good, but you, you have to ease into it so much with the impact. Well, we don't that like it's that. tough. <laughs> don't like the impact. We don't like that. <laughs> don't like easing into it. No, Speak for yourself. I mean, <laughs> it took me nine but, months to get to the point where I felt like I could get like I could do enough volume to really like get an aerobic workout from running. That's probably mm-hmm. overstating it. I bet I was getting a benefit from it just the same, but it took me a long time, and I, it was really boring. Like you know, running it like. For me, uh, it, where I'm comfortable running, like my tempo pace for running is around like, you know, seven minute miles or something. And I was running at 10 minutes and I didn't break that limit. Like, and I was like 10 minute miles and I'm not going underneath that. And I did like 10 minute runs. So like I was doing like maybe a mile. <laughs> right. And yeah. then eventually I made their super exciting step up to 15 minute runs. <laughs> like, and then wow. like, and then you after see. that I was like, maybe we flirt with nine forty five face. Like, so it was not, a, it took a really long time cause I was trying to avoid that same thing. Um, I think there's two answers to this. It depends on what you need from cross training. If you need like an emotional, like a change and to do something that you really love and maybe you love playing basketball, maybe that's the cross training activity that's the healthiest for you. Um, regardless, I think one thing to look at and why I think running isn't the best cross training for this is you need lateral movement. Um, because cross training, especially in the off season in that context, ideally makes you a bit more of a well-rounded athlete, more stable athlete, more capable athlete. And in cycling, we don't work a whole lot in lateral planes at all, really. So, uh, skate skiing is so good at that basketball, soccer, those sort of sports where you're doing a lot of lateral movement, tennis, uh, another great one or pickleball, I guess, since nobody likes tennis anymore and people just like pickleball. So, <laughs> uh, but whatever it is, uh, that's what I think. So a lateral movement or one that really you enjoy. Or, uh, uh, sorry, I'm going to add one yeah. more rock climbing. Ooh, yeah. Because like, it's not, it's more mentally engaging as well. Mm-hmm. Like it's like a puzzle on the wall, but that's kind of like running too. Cause you can't just like go climb hard stuff. You have to yeah. <laughs> figure it out and you have to like build up your, your fingers and the strength 
it's so so different, but it has so many different uh, muscles that you get to utilize. And yeah. I think for cycling, because climbing is a lot of like using your back muscles, and that's something with cycling you're always hunched forward. So climbing could could be good for your posture and bringing kind of bringing your posterior yeah. uh, engage muscle engagement. So. It also works overhead. And if you ask a cyclist to like raise their arms in almost every case, you'll see like a really big back arch to match raising their arms just over their head. Uh, we're really bad at mobility at getting at doing anything overhead. And that's one really great thing about climbing is that it would work mm -hmm. that very thing. You could argue the same for swimming too. The tricky part with swimming is that it's a lot of reps. And if you're not good at overhead movements, you don't have the mobility. It's easy to get a shoulder injury really fast with swimming just because <laughs> easy to drown. And also, <laughs> yes, you, you can die. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Number two, which cycling discipline requires the least amount of time to be competitive in races? Whew. I say uh, track sprinting, sprint events on the track. I can, I mean, That's physiologically, I could see that, right? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Ryan? I don't want to say the same thing as Ivy, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but also the track is kind of scary. You get up there at the top, yeah. <laughs> a long way down. <laughs> it is. And it's steep. I really, they're all hard in their own way. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think yeah, I was hesitant to say that cause like, it doesn't mean that track sprinting is easy by any means. <laughs> yeah. Like at all. <laughs> um, but just something I almost want to say, sorry. Oh no. Just think about the time it takes. What do you think? Yeah. I almost want to say gravel hmm. as well, because yes, you have a little bit of, like group riding dynamics. It's usually pretty scary at the start of the race, but it splits up pretty quick and you're in a small group. Whereas the road you have to like, you have to know how to ride in a group to, to be competitive at all. Gravels often small groups of five to 10 people. And yeah, like there's a little bit of skill riding on the, the mixed surface but it's not like mountain bike where it is a very skill, skill heavy sport and the track too. Like if you're, I guess, individual events on the track, like the kilo and the 4k, which are like the two hardest <laughs> events ever, <laughs> but you're not around any other people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's Fair the, quite, I think point. the tough dynamic is being around a lot of other people. I'm going to break your question. I think it's highly individual and it's like quite variable. Um, if you were to like for me to get to like reach like peak ability or like to fulfill my potential, I think downhill would be my closest, but it's because of my background in motocross. I suck for like two or three rides where I'm like, like park days where I'm really working on it. Then after that, it clicks. I get into the zone. If I look at like building fitness or anything else, it takes me more than two or three rides. Granted, I'm not going to say I'm going to win any downhill races. I'm talking about me getting to like my potential, reaching where my current potential is from where I'm at right now. And not my peak potential, but just current, you know, what I could do. I can reach that pretty quickly with downhill stuff. 
That does not mean it's easy and that does not mean I will be fast, but I can pick that up like, and I can get to the, to my level of fast really quick with it, but it's not that way for everybody because, you know, maybe the tech side of things and the skills is like a really uh, difficult thing to, to earn. Otherwise I would say sprinting just because physiologically speaking, we tend to retain the fast twitch fibers and our ability to use them and they can come back really quick. Uh, anaerobic fitness is easier to get than aerobic fitness, or I should say it comes quicker and it goes quicker as well. Um, aerobic fitness takes longer to come, but it also takes longer to go away. Uh, we have a blog post all about that. Go to trainroadcom slash blog and you can see what types of fitness disappear faster and at what rate. Um, okay. Uh, next one. I want to share a quick update for AI FTP detection. This is in beta still early access is what we call it. So if you go to trainerroad.com and then you go to your account, then you can see a little area called early access. You can click on that and you can turn on AI FTP detection. That's how you use it. So up until now it's been, uh, it's, it's been pretty limited in its use AI FTP detection, but now, and I say now we're pre-recording this episode. So by the time you hear this episode, App release stuff is always tricky. It might not get approved. There might be some sort of bug. So stay tuned. But in assuming everything goes well, <laughs> if you go to early access and enable it, yeah, lots of crossing, <laughs> lots of knocking. Uh, assuming everything goes well, you'll now be able to use AI FTP detection in a whole lot of scenarios. So I'm going to kind of like read it out. So it's really clear. Up until now, the button to use AI FTP detection could only be seen when using the app. And when you had that next workout on your calendar was the ramp test, you could click on that and see it. Now you can find that button on the web as well as the apps. You can find it when you have a ramp test on your calendar, when viewing a scheduled ramp test on the career page, like when it's your next workout upcoming. Uh, also when you're looking at the ramp test within the app or web, and you're like looking at the workout details, you'll be able to find that AI FTP detection button. There's more work going on to make it so that it's just automated and it just happens for you as well, which is really exciting, but this is the current update. And within this, there's also a change because Ivy, what did we see? As soon as we lost AI or launched AI FTP detection, people were like, not only checking it every day, they were like, wanted to check it mid inter- mid workout. They're like, after this interval, did my FTP go up? <laughs> like, yes. They were like, <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, I, I just slept an hour. Did my FTP go up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ryan actually used to work at Trainer Road too, which is, uh, we loved having him as a support agent. So Ryan's familiar with this. We had athletes wanting to check their FTP all the time. So we had like, just as like a temporary thing, we're like, we're going to put a 14 day gate on it. So then that way you can only check it every 14 days. After looking at the data and everything else, uh, we are putting a 28 day gate on it and we want to get data on that, meaning that you can only use the feature every 28 days. Uh, there are some exceptions to this and it'll be clear on when you can use it because if you go to click to use it and you can't, it'll say like, Hey, you have 24 days left or two days left, whatever it is, it'll count it down for you. So then it gives you the information you need. But John, what if my fitness has changed in the last 28 days? Progression levels and adaptive training (laughs) takes care of that because if there are changes in your FTP, uh, that doesn't necessarily have to be updated all the time, but rather your progression levels will update and make sure that you're getting the right workouts. It's not holding you back. Uh, it's actually just progressing you at the rate that you need to progress, which is really cool. So I want to point out work together. Yeah. A strength that progression levels have in that way. FTP only speaks to one portion of our fitness when we know how multifaceted our fitness really is amongst different zones at any given time of our training. And so that's why progression levels like speak so much more to what 
we're currently doing and where we're at, like in real time after each workout you do too, than this like one static number. Um, what if FTP just like went away one day? I know, like right? Oh, again? we've thought about it. We've thought about it for <laughs> sure. Like, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> yeah. If, if you're going to obsess over something, obsess over your progression levels, because that's where you can see your day-to-day progress and see where things are going. And that's a more meaningful representation of your abilities as an athlete, which is really cool. Um, you know, your FTP may not be going it. up. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Ivy. Checks in the mail. <laughs> uh, all right, let's go into Evan's question. He says, I have a really hard time getting to sleep when I have a big group ride or an event the next morning. <clears throat> obviously, it's just anxiety. And that's what Evan says is obviously. Um, uh, I don't know if I really like that usage of the word in this case, though, because I mean, you may just not know, Evan. So Evan says, it's just anxiety and or excitement. At least that's uh, his opinion there. But I'm sure this is quite common especially during summer when it often means waking up early to beat the heat. If I encroach on the sub six hours of sleep zone, I take a melatonin or Ambien, which have the upside of working fast, but I do feel they come with a performance loss the next day, especially after using Ambien. I'm a natural morning person, so I don't like waking up groggy, but I do feel the after effects of unnatural sleep, meaning like a drug assisted sleep, right? Uh, once we're a few hours into the ride and, and the intensity starts calling. So do you have any tips? Ivy, do you want to lead on, th- on this one? Sure. Um, well, I think in just terms of being anxious about the ride, like I wonder if Evan's just excited or like nervous about what will happen on the ride or in the race. Um, and there are just some like pre event night routine things that can help. Like, It seems silly, but, you know, as much as, like, pre-mixing your bottles and putting them in the fridge and, like, setting out your ride food so it's easy to just throw in your pockets, like, all that that kind of stuff, or or putting my shoes right next to my bike and making sure everything's charged up and already on my bike, that kind of stuff that I don't have to leave to last minute makes me feel more at ease about what that early morning will look like. Um, But if Evan's getting less than six hours of sleep the night before. So taking like an Ambien or a melatonin, like that's not enough time for that to work out uh, of the system. Work out, right? Like if you if you took an Ambien or melatonin knowing you were gonna get like eight hours of sleep as a result and like have plenty of time in the morning to bounce back from it, like that would make more sense. But there's no way that you know, if it's a super early morning thing because of the summer and Evan's getting up at like five or six to do those really early morning rides or races, that means that they took a Ambien or melatonin at like 11 or midnight. Like that's too mm-hmm. late, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So I think uh, Evan knows that like that's not a good plan to take <laughs> to have a drug assisted sleep if they're only going to have a few hours of sleep. Um and the alternate, I guess, is just not sleeping. But, mm. you know, is that worse? Yeah, it's true. What do you do? <laughs> I'm do just wondering, that? reading, just reading the question again, if it seems like maybe he takes it because he hasn't been able to, like he might have been in bed since nine, but it gets mm-hmm. to be midnight and he's still not sleeping mm-hmm. and still probably not a great thing to then take uh, a sleeping aid but maybe if if you took it at 8 30 and then that would help you get 
closer to the, the eight hours of sleep. Uh, but like, for don't, me, like you're saying, like, don't wait until 11 or 12 when you're like, oh, I'm not sleeping. I should take something like if you know I you think, might have trouble, like take it at eight. I think I think that would be a, a good, good approach. And if if, you know, I guess you don't want to build a dependency on that to to take it before before every race. But I, I feel that struggle too. I think for me, I focus on or don't focus, but I, I like to have a, a solid night's sleep two nights before the race. Cause I, I get the pre-race jitters and don't, don't sleep great a lot of the time the night before the race. So knowing that I'll try to make sure I get a full eight, maybe even 10 hours of sleep on Thursday night going into Friday, knowing that I might not, may not sleep as well. But like you said, Ivy, having, having everything laid out the night before lets you not think about it in the morning. It's not something that's going through your, going through your head, like as it gets later and later at night. And maybe that's something if you haven't done it when you can't sleep and it's like 10 o'clock, go spend half an hour lining everything out, getting it all, all set up. So then you don't have to think about that anymore. Mm -hmm. That's how I trick myself into sleeping better is I get everything ready and I feel so like, uh, it like boxes are checked. Everything's put away, done, and that really helps me relax and, and be able to sleep better when there are pre-race nerves. <clears throat> I do agree that the two nights before is really important. And that's a very common thing. But I also hear people say, like, who cares whatever sleep you get? And it's referencing a study that, that was published that looked at athletes the night before their like the And it basically looked at results. And then it looked at amount of sleep the night before. And it found that there was no direct like correlation that like athletes could have any sort of quality of sleep or amount of sleep and they would still perform well or perform poorly. They like perform as expected. But me personally, I don't, I haven't found that to be true. Like for me, and I'm not saying for everybody, I, the night before really matters to me. Like I've had coming into a race where I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm great. The night, but the two nights before I got a great night's sleep. And then the night before, uh, whether it's, you know, from our, from a baby just crying the whole night or something else like that, or you're sick and you don't really, or not sick, but just nervous. So you can't sleep as well. That absolutely affects me the next day. Now it could be like psychologically affecting me. I don't know if it's like physically affecting me. What I mean by that is when you sleep, you know, you recover all the good chemicals get released into the body, all good things. Uh, but it could just be the fact that when I don't get sleep, then in my mind, I'm like, I didn't get good sleep. I'm stressed. What am I going to do? And that stops me from performing. Whatever it is, I have found, or whatever the reason, I have found that the night before is super crucial for me. So the way that I engineer around that is making sure that I pre-plan everything. And I, the hard part about that is that it makes me really dependent on having everything work well. And when it doesn't work well, it's really tough for me to adapt. So when like, you know, a wrench gets thrown in the spokes, it's tricky for me um, to be able to adapt. But that's how at least I've approached it. I, when I take melatonin, uh, I don't take, I've taken Ambien for sleep before, but very, very rarely, but melatonin is more common. And when I take it, 
I don't actually sleep as well. I feel like, man, I'm really rested, but typically like midway through the day or something else, I start to feel like, Oh, I don't feel very good. I feel like I didn't sleep very well. That's like almost a direct personal N equals one correlation that I want that I'm just sharing for me. So like Ryan said, if you build up a dependency on this sort of stuff, then it's really tricky to just say, well, before the race, I'm going to cut it out and I'll be fine. Um, but if you can get to a point where you have natural sleep, where that isn't utilized, it does give you a bit more flexibility and it does help you avoid the potential negative drawbacks that you would get from drug assisted sleep. So like it's, it's a tricky thing, especially if somebody's experiencing insomnia or anything else like that, that's like at a different level. And we're not really talking about that, but athletes, if you are in a situation like this, you have to pay attention to how you feel instead of just trying to check a box with like X number of hours of sleep, pay attention to how you feel and what your routine's doing for you and then optimize that. So then you feel the best throughout the day. And then that's what you try to mimic for race day. That would be my advice. So anything else? I also have a, I have a book recommendation Ooh, to put um, you to sleep or like it teaches you to sleep it, better. <laughs> kind of both. <laughs> um, it's called why we sleep. I think, oh, by, I, I think it's Matthew Walker is the author. Mm-hmm. He's a sleep scientist. Um, it goes, yeah, it's like history of sleep and how to sleep better and what happens when we sleep and how it affects both short and long-term everything and really interesting book and, and scientific. I think it, it has all the science scientific articles and journals that, um, that they've used to, to help write the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll that helped me. It, it makes mm-hmm. you sleepy. Um, <laughs> but that helped me to focus more on sleep and how important it is for not only your physical physiological well i guess physiological in all senses of the word <laughs> both mm-hmm. mental performance and physical performance as well yeah so. for sure ivy anything else to add on this one no nope, you're not alone evan it's okay do your best <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely all right are we ready for the first edition of ask a cycling coach trivia Okay, I will be keeping score here. This is the trivia game where everybody can play along that's listening. Uh, We're going to try actually something on Spotify so that we can end on YouTube to add these questions as polls. We don't know how that's going to work for the ones that aren't multiple choice. I don't know. We'll figure it all out, but play along (laughs) with us. uh, And maybe soon we'll even have like an intro and great sound effects. It'll be fantastic. (laughs) So uh, question one, adding up all the time in zone from Nate's favorite 90 minute endurance workout, Baxter, how much time is spent outside of the Z2 endurance zone in a seven zone model, 12 minutes, 18 minutes, or 24 minutes. Do you want us to answer this right now? I do out loud. Yeah. I think it's Baxter has a lot of like little blocky steps, but I think most of it is, I'm going to say a, I think it's very little time. I love zone two. Ooh, that might be says a. I'm saying I'm going to go B. Ryan says B. Nobody got it. It's 24 minutes. What? Oh my! Isn't that surprising? (laughs) Yeah, totally. I guess it probably goes like a little into zone three, and then the warm up and cool down is. You nailed it, Ryan. Probably 
are they 10 minutes each or five Indeed. minutes warm up, 10 minutes cool down? That's right. Should've Here's done the factoid about it. And we're going to get a fact after every <laughs> trivia question. Rated a level 2.4 endurance workout with progression levels. Baxter is one of the most popular endurance workouts in the trainer road catalog due to its constantly varied power targets that hold attention and the relative easy way it allows you to accumulate a meaningful chunk of endurance work. It's quite power, quite popular. I think thanks to Nate as well. Mm-hmm. Question two of Mariana Voss's 101 cyclocross victories. How many were not on European soil? A 11 B seven or C five. Hey, I'll say B seven. It's probably C again. The answer is C. (laughs) Classic. What's that? What's that rule? If you just answer C on all the multiple choice things, you'll pass. You've discovered me. Uh, Mariana Voss has one of, if not the most impressive and enviable win records in cycling with world championship titles in road racing, cyclocross track, Olympic gold medals in track and road racing wins at the largest women's races on the calendar and multiple cyclocross and road world cup overall wins. It's no wonder she's described as the best cyclist of this generation. And you can fight me on that one. She wins that title. So yeah, pretty darn good. All right. Question three. What was the average speed of the winner at the 2022 Latour de France Femme? A 40.7 kilometers per hour or 25.3 miles per hour. Or did I say? Yeah. Okay. I said that right. B 37.4 kilometers per hour or 23.2 miles per hour or C 38.8 kilometers per hour or 42.1 miles per hour. Ivy, are we going C for this one? I'm going to go C. Yeah, because I think I know this one, and I think it's actually C. Yeah, and I should say, uh, I said that last one wrong. It was 24.1 miles per hour, not 42. The answer is C. You both got it right. (laughs) Way to go. We're on to you, John. We're on to you. All right. So the factoid on this one, the 2022 Latour de France Femme was won by Annemiek van Vluten, who was one minute and 28 seconds behind in GC with two stages to go before building a three minute and 48 second lead in the brutally hard final mountain stages. Talk about a turnaround and she was sick and had like crashes and all sorts of stuff. Super impressive. The it's all tied up one each. And then if you're playing at home, (laughs) who know ever, who knows where you're at? Another multiple choice one question four: what is the oldest age with which a rider has won La Tour de France? A 33 years old, B 35 years old, C 36 years old. It can't be C again, so I'm gonna go B. Thirty five years old. <laughs> I'm going C. I'm I'm going with the C. Thirty six. Ivy says B. Ryan says C. The answer is C. Thirty six years old. <laughs> John, come on. The fact Wait, I don't want to play anymore. <laughs> I'm taking my ball and I'm C. going home. <laughs> the next one's not multiple choice. You don't have to worry. Okay. The fact with this one, Firmin Lambeau, which I I apologize for that terrible pronunciation, won the 1922 edition of the Tour de France at 36 years old and 36 and four months years old. Uh, the youngest winner is Henri or Henri Cornet who won the second edition of the Tour de France in 1904 at 19 years old. Pretty crazy. All right, question five. 
or it's a, uh, at this point, it's not tied up anymore. Ryan leads two to one <laughs> against Ivy. <clears throat> All right. Which country sits in second place in total tour de France wins? This is not multiple choice. You just have to guess. I'm going to say Spain. Place. Ivy says Spain. France. Ryan says France. Your guesses are on the podium. However, they are not second place. You guessed on either end of it. The answer is Belgium. Oh, France is probably first. Yep. Although France has recently struggled to deliver Tour de France winners, they still have won the most editions of the Tour de France with 36 editions, won across 21 different riders. Spain rounds out the podium with 12. (laughs) Question six, and we're still at uh, two to one here. Question six, the 2022 edition of the men's Paris-Roubaix was won on which tires? This is multiple choice. A, Vittoria Corsa Control, B, Continental GP 5000, or C, Veloflex Roubaix? John, you you doing this to us again? (laughs) I'm going with C. Ryan says C, Veloflex Roubaix. Say... Uh, A, Vittoria Corsa Control. Ivy says A, Vittoria Corsa Control. The answer is B, Continental GP oh. 5000. <laughs> Ineos' Dylan Van Barl won the 2022 edition of the Paris-Roubaix after finishing in the final group of 10 riders to cross the line in 2021, missing the time cut. So never let past results decide future potential. It's a good takeaway <laughs> from that one. So mm. he was last the year before, won it the next. And it was on tubeless tires. So that's kind of a big deal. So for Roubaix, all right, question seven, and we're still at two to one, which two countries are tied for the most world cup overall victories in women's cross country Olympic racing. Ooh, and no multiple choice here. You just have to guess which, which two countries, which two countries are tied for the most world cup overall victories in women's cross country Olympic racing, Swiss and French. That's my answer too. That has to be it. Or maybe I should change it. Uh, I'll say. uh, Swiss and Italian. Neither of you got it right. The answer is USA and Canada. Surprisingly. What? I know. Right. Switzerland in third place is only one win away from a three-way tie with the two North American countries. Surprisingly, although France is one of the most dominant countries in terms of race wins, it has only won the World Cup overall two times. Uh, I didn't Isn't even that crazy? listen to that question, whole question. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking just talking- World Cup wins. Mm, there we go. <laughs> Not overall. Yeah. That's all right. We're still at two to one. Listen to your that. listen to the question, kids. <laughs> <laughs> good 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 tip, right? Uh, answer your own question. <laughs> Question eight, for a rider to burn 1,000 kilojoules per hour on the bike, what would their average power need to be? Closest guess wins. So somebody's getting a point on this one. Ryan's doing math. I'm uh, narrating this for podcast listeners. Uh, 333. Ryan says 333 watts. 334 watts. Ivy says 334 watts with the price is right uh, tactic. (laughs) The answer is less than you think, 278 watts. Ryan is closest, therefore he wins. (laughs) 
<laughs> Assuming uh, world hour record holder Filippo Ghana's FTP is 480 watts, he would burn 1,728 kilojoules in one hour of riding at his FTP. That equates to roughly 17 gels worth of energy done in one hour, which is crazy to think mm-hmm. of. <laughs> so we now have Ryan leading three to one. We're going to question Bummer. nine. <laughs> The UCI rules for time trial bike fits allow athletes to choose one of two morphological exemptions. Accurately describe one of the two exemptions. Uh, I think you both have, or I know Ivy, I think has experience with. Yeah. Your saddle can be, oh my gosh. I can't remember if it's. I should have you type this one in, right? And then like. In relation to your bottom bracket or if it's the angle that's the exemption i think that you can tilt your saddle more than like six or eight degrees or something ryan you weren't gonna know on this one right i might i'll have a go (laughs) yeah do you have a different answer i do the length of the extensions or the distance to the elbow pad but i don't know the i don't know the number so neither of those are the morphological exemptions. <laughs> the tips of the extensions, there's two different ones. One is the saddle exemption. A rider can move their saddle forward beyond the five, negative five, beyond centimeter the five centimeters BB position, but they can't move past that, that BB position. And then the reach exemption, a rider can move the tip of their handlebar extensions forward beyond the 75 centimeter limit from the bottom bracket to no further than 80 centimeters from the bottom bracket. What Ryan was talking about was the pad to extension height limit, which is 10 centimeters. And that one cannot be changed for a morphological exemption. Mm-hmm. I don't like this segment. <laughs> I was talking about the distance, but I didn't know the, where the distance was from. <laughs> oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. yeah there we go. <laughs> it was yeah. late, but it wasn't, it wasn't the correct uh, I think we have a few more. You're going to come back and win. I'm calling it. All right. <clears throat> this next one. This one might favor Ryan though, exercise fizz major over there. So number 10, and we're at three to one still name five of the seven main electrolytes your body needs to sustain vital functions. Should we drop this to four? (laughs) I only remember variety, balance, and moderation. (laughs) (laughs) Let's drop it to four. Okay. Key electrolytes. Mm -hmm. Number one, write them down, write them down in the doc. Okay. Where are we at? Ivy, did you say salt? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ivy says salt. Um. Ryan is typing. (laughs) Good job, Ivy. She's got more options coming in now. Uh, five seconds, right? Uh-huh. Why can I not think of anything? Okay. Time is up. Crystal garlic. All right. <laughs> Ivy says salt, potassium citrate, potassium nitrate, crystals, and garlic. <laughs> Uh, Ryan says <laughs> sodium and potassium. I'm going to award Ivy a point for that. <laughs> yes. it's a wonderful the creativity. <laughs> uh, we're at three uh, to two. 
So uh, <laughs> the different, uh, the seven electrolytes your body needs to sustain vital functions, sodium, potassium, magnesium, magnesium. calcium, phosphorus, mm. chloride, and bicarbonate. So for more information on hydration and sodium and why sodium is the electrolyte that deserves most of your attention above the rest, tune into episode 221 of the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast with Precision Hydration's Andy Blow. He is awesome. It's a great episode. All right, just three left. According to the Trainer Road database more than a, with more than 150 million rides, what percentage of Trainer Road athletes have a power-to-weight ratio greater than four watts per kilogram? Closest guest wins. Mm-hmm. Closest guest wins. So again, what percentage of trainer road athletes have a power to weight, power to weight ratio greater than four Watts per kilogram? 10%. Ivy says 10%. 12%. Ryan says 12%. The answer is 15%. (laughs) (laughs) For a nice dose of Instagram versus reality, while pro athletes, power to weight ratios of more than 5.5 watts per kilogram are commonly focused on, more than 50% of athletes are at or below 3 watts per kilogram, with FTPs at or below 230 watts. So don't fret when you hear these big numbers talked about. We're all in this boat together. We're less impressive <laughs> than than pros. So that's how it works. Well, speaking for myself, not for you two. Um, <laughs> all right, we're at 3 to 2. Question 12, what is the cumulative time for podcast favorite Sofia Gomez Vidiofanie and teammate Haley Batten at the 2022 Cape Epic? Closest guess wins. Remember that this is seven stages with a prologue. 33 hours and 47 minutes. All right, Ryan says 33 hours and 47 minutes. Can I, I'm sorry, Ryan, I'm going to price this, Ryan, it. <laughs> 33 hours and 48 minutes. <laughs> Come on. The answer is 33 hours and 41 minutes. The price is right. <laughs> Served you wrong again, Ivy. <laughs> you needed to go the other way. Oh, my gosh. All right. I think that we're at 42 or 5 to 2. I'm how close that was. Yeah, yeah good job, was Ryan. Wow. Very impressed. Yeah, very impressed. Are we at 4 to 2 or 5 to 2 now? I think 5 to 2. It listen. It doesn't matter. It does. <laughs> yeah. All right. The fact on this one, Sophia's 2022 season started strong at Cape Epic and kept rolling with a win at Unbound Gravel and second place in the Lifetime Grand Prix. Uh, a strong result in two UCI World Championships, e-bike MTB Worlds, and also the inaugural Gravel World Championships. Well done, Sophia. Last question. I'm tempted to give like, you know, weighted points so that we could have like, you know, some tense action here. So, uh, the question is, if you added up all the time, this is a wild guess, all the time that listeners have spent listening to the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast since its inception, this is episode 387, how much time would it be closest guest or closest guest wins? Hint, go big on this one. <laughs> if you added up all the minutes listened. We have to say minutes? No, you can... Give it in other time units. Not I mean, just I can, minutes. yeah, do. Um, two hundred and two hundred and sixty-eight million minutes. Minutes. <laughs> can you put that into years for me? I can't do the math. <laughs> How many years, Ryan? You said you wanted it in minutes. <laughs> no, any time unit works. I did the math. I I think um, I'm going to say eight hundred and. 20 hours. 
So 49,200 minutes. Okay. Ivy says 820 hours. Ryan. Oh, do you need me to convert it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <please. laughs> give it to me in, you know, days, months, years, hours, whatever. It's a lot of days. <laughs> Uh, 168,800 days. Mm. All right. 168,800 days, which I have no clue how many, uh, years that would be, but the answer is 4,789 years, 326 days, 22 hours and 25 minutes as of this week of this podcast. (laughs) Wait, I think I misread the question. So you no. got to be paying oh. attention. <laughs> See, I don't like question. this segment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Ivy. Uh, okay. So Ryan wins because he was closest. Uh, 4,789 years, almost 4,790 years, which is absolutely insane. That's the Cycling Coach Podcast continues as the highest ranked cycling podcast available. Thanks to all of you Yay. for voting on Spotify. Ooh. Go over there and vote. We got the lead now. It's like we crested the top of the climb in the lead, but now you got to push over the top. You don't just wait. You know, you got to keep going. So go to Spotify and rate us uh, with weekly listeners that far surpass the seating capacity, of even the largest stadium in the U.S., Michigan Stadium. And thank you to all of you. It's truly astounding to think that there's 4,789 years worth of listening that's happened. It's astounding. So fantastic. Thanks, everybody, for listening. The trivia game ends with Ryan at six, Ivy at two, and all of you playing at home. I hope that uh, I hope it was a tight match for all of you with one of these two. So, <laughs> to Listen. be fair, we missed a lot still, <laughs> even at six. <laughs> you can't have it all, you know. You can't be academically strong and also a good bike racer and also talk good. All right. Talk, <laughs> talking good is hard. <laughs> the one thing I've learned from this is if you're going to do the prices right tactic, go low, don't go over. That's what I've learned from, from all this. So. That's yeah. <laughs> all right. Christopher's question for Ryan says, love the podcast and what y'all do for the cycling community with trainer road. This year I signed up for unbound gravel and it was a brutal day with flats, bad stomach issues and more. And by the way, this is not this year. This is the previous year because I searched through our question queue for Standish just out of curiosity. And sure enough, we had a question that mentioned Ryan in it. So amidst the chaos of the day, I think I saw Ryan Standish blow by me, or at least I think it was him, but I can't be too sure as I was delirious. My point in bringing this up is that I'm a bigger guy compared to most cyclists. I was a lineman as a kid and all the way through college at Texas A&M. And I've got the build to match. I've always been leaner than most linemen. And since taking up cycling, I'm even leaner now, but the muscle mass hasn't gone anywhere. I've got calves. You could pull a T-bone from and they'd keep walking. (laughs) It's like the most (laughs) Texan thing thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Ryan doesn't seem to look like most pro cyclists. And while I have no ambitions of going pro that motivated me to see somebody that isn't a featherweight doing so well. I know Jonathan knows Ryan, so perhaps you all could ask him if he does strength training to maintain his strong frame, how he manages power to weight, and what advantages he notices he has over muscular riders. Many thanks and keep doing the good work. Ryan, this one's all you. <laughs> As a heavy cyclist, I think I fall into normal-sized uh, grown man, <laughs> normal-sized adult male, um, but... That was a lot of questions in there. We'll see if I can remember. Uh, yeah, let's take what them they one are, by one. Like, do you do strength training to maintain your strong frame? 
not much, not much weight training, a lot of body weight stuff, some light kind of light squats and a little bit of like explosive stuff as well, but not, not consistently throughout the year. And you're not hitting uh, like your three rep max on anything. No, I'll yeah. do like, th- I'll do a three rep max. Like after probably a week, not a week, a month in the gym after the off season, just to get a baseline of what to do from there. But we'll do at mo- at the very most three, three strength days during the week. And usually it's one or two uh, throughout the season. And that's along with O'Connor. Uh, with our O'Connor. O'Connor your yep. plug for podcast listener, trainer road athlete. He's finished the Iditarod using trainer road to train for it. Yep. He's amazing. Uh, He's a beast. Cool. <laughs> yeah. But very, I do a lot more, I'd say more focus on, uh, mobility and functional strength. I have like have some knee and ankle issues and hips. So focusing on doing those more PT style exercises with resistance bands and um yeah i guess it's all resistance bands but trying to maintain the the small balance uh and functional muscles instead of instead of making the muscles big which i don't do don't do much for making muscles big that's just uh i think i got it from my mama <laughs> on those i think it's it's definitely genetics and i'm still like we we talked about earlier i don't have much weight to lose so mm-hmm. i just gotta stay dense <laughs> i like it so ryan do you put uh this next question how he manages power to weight is that something that you focus on like oh, i gotta watch my power to weight ratio or do you just focus on the power pretty much just focus on the power uh, I think there's still, I have a lot of work, not a lot, but I would like to bump my FTP up and, and work more on the ability to ride. So like tempo and threshold, especially for those long gravel races where to be in the lead group, you have to be able to ride 300 plus Watts for normalized power of 300 i think is what keegan did for unbound so for a guy like me it's not a super climby course but there are still climbs but i would i would have to do probably 320 to 330 normalized for 10 hours to to keep up (laughs) i want to do the kilojoule math on that (laughs) yeah it's uh not physically possible to eat that, that much yeah, you can't. <laughs> in, in like three days I don't think you can eat that much in three days but uh yeah for me it's been it's more focusing on on the power and and not I'm not trying to not really trying to do anything with the weight side of that equation it's more how can I train to sustain more power for for the day which probably similar to I forgot forgot his name or their name. Um the the question. Oh yeah. Who asked the question? Uh, it comes from Christopher. Christopher. 
uh, sounds like I'm, I might not be quite as big as Christopher because I would never be a lineman. <laughs> I'm not that big. Um, but to focus on, yeah, on the power and not, not so much worry about trying to lose muscle mass, which is not, not an approach that will get you through a long day on the bike. Mm -hmm. The next question he says is what advantages do you notice that you have over less muscular riders? Because instantly the mind goes to, Oh, muscle weighs a lot. So you're disadvantaged on the climb, but there's more to cycling than that. Particularly when you're talking about mountain biking or gravel or things like that. So do you You notice you have an advantage? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ryan fall down and no go boom. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So do you notice Uh, like an advantage that you have over less muscular riders? I think when it's, when it's windy, I notice mm. not like you look at the, the little guys kind of get blown around and it's hard for them to ride as, as steady. We're having more, more mass. You don't get, it's, it's not as hard to find a, like it's harder to find a place out of the wind, but you don't have to work as hard, I think, or you, you can sustain a more steady, steady power when it's windy and the like short, punchy, short, punchy stuff as well. Like closing down, closing down gaps where it's more power, like raw power based instead of power to weight. So I do have, have trouble on the climbs like, uh, like Leadville where it's high altitude, steep climb for a long period of time those are, those days are tough, but still, still comes back to training to put out more, more power so you can ride more power for, for that climb. But for me to compete with Keegan at, at a race like Leadville, it's, that would be tough. (laughs) I have to do a lot more Watts. Uh, the high altitude I think is harder for, for heavier athletes because you need more oxygen for more to go to more of your muscles and, mm-hmm. um, and that's tough. But I think last thing, the big, big muscles typically are more type two fast twitch fibers. So I find that the VO two and anaerobic sprint work comes back really quick. Like I don't, don't think I have to work too much on that to, have the ability to to be do well there mm-hmm. like that's evident said like i would never crits. yeah keegan said i would never want to come to a line <laughs> with you <laughs> yeah <laughs> like yeah i just yeah. have to make it to a finish line with him <laughs> see how that goes <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely uh, Ivy, I know this question was directed to Ryan, but do you have any thoughts that you would want to share? I mean, you've raced with a lot of different athletes over the years. Yeah, it's directed at Ryan, but it's super triggering to me because I'm like maybe less than an inch shorter than Ryan. And <laughs> there are pictures of us together and we look like pretty similar. So I, I'm like, damn, I thought we were just like normal people. But- <laughs> <laughs> just normal, normal people. <laughs> You are normal but, people, actually. I know. That's, that's the whole point. 
Yeah. But I know that I am kind of, um, uh, someone called me a linebacker recently compared Jeez. to some of the really <laughs> slight, really like slight, um, female they racers. A hug. Yeah, they need yeah, I hug. need a hug. Yeah, yeah, yeah you need um, a hug. They also need a hug. Who says that about yeah. somebody? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I think it was trying to be like a compliment because I look pretty muscular too, and I'm just like tall and sturdy looking. But <laughs> yikes! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, when Ryan was talking about uh, advantages, when uh, he feels like he has. When he feels like he has has an advantage over um, less muscular riders, I thought about specifically being in the mud in cyclocross. Like I feel like I can really excel when there are really slight riders that um, have a harder time. And it's a couple of things. I think weight, um, just having more traction because I weigh more. But then also just like being a stronger, sturdier rider, being able to recruit more muscles and all those really weird, nuanced ways you have to steer your bike in the mud. Um, that's one time when I feel like, um, well, not one, it isn't an, an example of when I feel like it's beneficial to be sturdier, um, in my experience. People don't mess with like, you as much oh. in the bunch either. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Ooh, that's another advantage. You give them, you give them a look. If they do something funny, they don't do it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of a, like a, the example that's sticking out most in my mind with what you just said, Ivy. It's so true. Um, thinking of like Ellie Eserbet, the cyclocross racer, and then compared to like, uh, wow, or Matthew Vanderpool <clears throat> and both of them are, are much larger in stature. And when you see them going through the mud, or through sand is like another good example. They, Mm -hmm. it seems like they're able to maintain their momentum with much less fuss, I guess, with their, with their body, they're able to power through it. And riders like Tobin Orton blood or like, uh, you know, lots of really good cyclocross racers. They aren't super slight and you just pinpointed a spot where I think they have a great advantage. Um, Mm -hmm. there's tons of advantage to be had from it. I, I also find that your ability to maintain traction out of the saddle on varied surfaces and you have more strength, uh, maybe it is just because of weight. Like you said, Ivy, <clears throat> I also think it's just, <clears throat> if you're stronger, this doesn't necessarily equate to hypertrophy and bigger muscle mass, but if you're stronger and more capable, then it's really easy to be able, relatively speaking, to be able to do the small little changes in your weight distribution and tension through your body to be able to maintain that traction. So <clears throat> I also, from the outside in notice that Ryan, I mean, Ivy, you're a really good technical writer too. I don't know how much of this is because of your strength or just your really good technique, but, Thanks. uh, Ryan, I've also noticed in technical mountain bike stuff, he's able to, uh, whereas a smaller rider might go through with quite a lot of body movement and they're trying to you know, it's tricky for them. Ryan's able to manage technical terrain really, uh, relatively speaking, at least from the outside in Ryan, it might be really hard <laughs> when you're doing it, but it looks really easy. So, uh, it looks really good. So, um, I just go thud instead of, just go, <laughs> instead of, boing, boing, boing. yeah, <laughs> instead of boing, boing. yeah, I like it. Thick so is yeah, quick, I, everyone. Yeah. Thick, thick is, is quick. quick. Just kidding. Thick We're not thick. We're normal people. <laughs> there we are. Normal size <laughs> humans. <laughs> Let's go into Todd's question. He says, Hey, all I've just completed my first hundred mile gravel race. And after many years of mountain bike racing, the race went well, no blood was spilled (laughs) Says, and ended up in the top three of my 60 age group. So of my 60 year old age group, I think you're saying there, Todd, uh, way to go. Uh, if not 60 year old age group, then maybe it's top three out of 60 regardless, Todd, way to go. Super impressive. 
Good job. Um, Solid. The metric, that, yeah, right? The metric that makes me very happy with how I raced in spite of not placing higher in my age group is the fact that I had an intensity factor of 0.85, which as I understand it would be very hard to achieve over 100 miles. So I want to point out that it's not necessarily hard to achieve that. That's actually like ideal pacing where you're getting close to your capacity to be able to do. So it is very impressive um, and and well done, Todd. But it's not one of those things that's outside of physiological realms of like possibility. Um, it just means that you crushed it, basically. So well done. Uh, the question is, what does this high IF say about my fitness and what I should be working on over the winter? That is, what training plan might help me develop further? So that's kind of a tricky question. And we're going to try to bridge some gaps and we'll do a lot of guessing on this one. Uh, Todd continues to say, I'm considering an a race in March and again in December, and both are endurance oriented. So I assume wrapping back around to December of next year and then hope to do local <coughs> short course mountain bike races in the summer. So perhaps just, I, I'm, I, we'll find out on the schedule there, but for context, I'm 63 years old. I have an AI FTP of 186 Watts or 2.7 Watts per kilogram and have trained largely using trainer road for five years off and on. I recognize that for me, the low hanging fruit is that I have not done weight training as I'm on the feet or on my feet at work all day and do a lot of heavy lifting in my yard. Think heavy wheelbarrows going uphill. Also, I could still lose six to eight pounds. We all say that, but it may not be the best thing for us, Todd. Now, beyond the low hanging fruit, what specifically can I work on to be a better athlete? Can I first just address like the, the IF thing and what it says about fitness? And then we can kind of go uh, off from there. Um, the, so what that, assuming that your FTP is spot on and accurate, Todd, which if you're using AI FTP detection, I have great confidence that it is because it's looking at like the broad spectrum of your fitness, not just like a single effort on a single day, uh, riding, being able to do 0.85 IF for a hundred miles, uh, shows that you have what some people call like high fractional utilization, your ability to be able to ride at a higher percentage of your threshold and sustain that for a longer period of time is well developed. This is indicative of strong aerobic fitness. So what this shows is that the training that you've been doing has really worked in that regard. And likely it seems like you're probably on adaptive training and that's likely extending your time and zone and really helping you with that. So that's a really cool, uh, perk of adaptive training is that it's making sure that those things are happening. So that's what it would say. Now, in terms of, you say that you lack strength, like you don't do strength training and you're wondering about what to work on. You're planning on doing some mountain bike racing in the summer there's tons of options to be working on anaerobic side of things. And it can be kind of fun, uh, as an aging athlete at 63, technically it's aging athlete is what they call it, or master's athlete, senior athlete, uh, in that situation, anaerobic work does get neglected. And so does strength and it has some negative health effects that can come with that, not necessarily tied to it. It's not, uh, it's not like causation directly, but they tend to be correlated with each other. So, what do y'all think from me looking at this? It seems like strength training and maybe even doing like a, a short little like mini block of your own where you're just doing like intense workouts, like anaerobic stuff. And you do like two of those a week or something. And you kind of mix that in, in between you being on a training plan could be a fun way to go. What do you think Ivy? I, I disagree with weight training. I don't think weight training is the low hanging fruit, especially, uh, you know, Todd saying they're on their feet a lot, uh, mm -hmm. at work, like all day. Um, and does a lot of heavy lifting in the yard. Like, I don't think weight training, when you just think about the tax that comes with weight training in terms of recovery and your overall fitness, when you're already doing stuff like that, I don't think that that is 
what's going to take them to the next level. Like, um, especially when you think about, like, it, it sounds silly, but like the time associated to like go to the gym and do like a consistent gym routine, do a VO2 max workout instead, you know? Like, I think just upping your volume instead um, and doing, picking a short VO2 max workout or, you know, using plan builder to up your volume and use alternates to make sure that it's, you know, a time that's manageable for you would be the easier low hanging fruit than adding something else to your routine that ultimately is going to be more taxing and might hurt things like your recovery and sleep um, when you could just train a little bit more and train those systems that you need to kind of put you in the next level. Great point, Ivy. Because Ryan, I'm thinking of some of the strength training I see you do. Farmer carries like that's like carrying a wheelbarrow. You know, like he might yeah, be in yard work. Typically, is, yeah, like, real. <laughs> kind of do that in like you're trying to yeah. replicate that in the gym. <laughs> yeah, seriously, right? And and in a lot of cases for athletes that are of this age, like strength training is is recommended to build bone density and strength. Whereas it tends to just decline over the years, um, inactivity absolutely accelerates that if you're active and you're on your feet all day, that's probably helping quite a lot with building those sort of dense bones. So yeah, great points Ivy that I overlooked. Um, perhaps the advice that I have might be better for more like generally speaking for average athletes, mm -hmm. but in Todd's case, really good astute observations. Yeah, Thanks. really good. Uh, Ryan, uh, what are your thoughts on maybe what Todd could do in the off season, considering he has mountain bike races and some other stuff planned for the summer and beyond? His first race is in March, right? Mm -hmm. I guess, especially depending on where Todd's based in during the winter, will probably affect what he's able to do. I think if you're if you're adding more trainer workouts because it's cold where you live but you have the opportunity or ability to go do some skate skiing or or go do some alpine skiing at the at the resort i think those are both good options for the the bone density side as well because you you are having more a little <laughs> more impacts um for for that but if you are I think I'm with Ivy on the strength strength training um, since you do yard work and are on your feet all day. If you if you did want to add more on the bike, then I would be looking at the more of the top end since it sounds like sounds like they have a good uh, aerobic base. I think 0.85 IF is tempo ish. Mm -hmm zone right yeah sweet spot um sweet yeah. spot mm -hmm. so if you if you have good ability to ride at that for a hundred mile event maybe you can can add a little more of the top end so that potentially those those two guys who were ahead of you maybe they surged or attacked that little extra bit of top end will give you the ability to ride with them or or go when they attack if you're looking at that for, from a racing perspective. Yeah. Good. It, it, it like makes you more dynamic. You have another tool to use while you're still able to maintain that really high, you know, relatively high IF. So that should be clear. I know that sweet spot isn't technically where he's at there with, uh, I mean, it could be, it overlaps, but yeah, that sweet spot tempo zone, right. Is, is where they're at. 
I've, it's also something fun that you can do just to change it up uh, because it's like a different type of training to focus on for a little while. And that can be really fun. And then maybe also give you a great indication of how your body reacts to it. Just take it uh, like take play it by ear, so to speak. Make sure you don't just go crazy with it and do those workouts every single day for two weeks because it'll you'll probably get hit that point of diminishing returns real quick with that. So you want to make sure you pay attention how your body feels. Uh, pretty exciting. Can have a good season next year. Uh, that being able to hold that tempo stuff, man, that's, that's race specific intensity, even though everybody thinks that high intensity is where it's at. So you spend the majority hey, of the time. Hey Todd, can you share some of that with me? Yeah. <laughs> Ryan will take it. Uh, okay. Uh, let's go for, let's go into Chase's question. Uh, Chase says, first off, I want to give a quick tire pump to everyone who supported the development of the TR platform to date. I've seen massive progression using adaptive training on a low volume plan and it helped me crest over the four watt per kilogram hump and has given me the confidence to push to my next goal of 4.25 watts per kilogram uh, in rare air up there. Uh, well done, Chase. Uh, Chase says, anyways, here's my question. I've switched from Enduro to Marathon XC for next year. My first A event is called the Merit Crown in the interior of British Columbia. For context, it's approximately 120 kilometers or Chase kindly enough did the translation for us. He says 40 or 74.56 freedom units. Freedom units. <laughs> yeah, freedom units. I love it. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and 3,300 meters or 10,827 freedom units. <laughs> uh, that is a big day. Uh, wow. 75 yeah. miles and 10,800 feet of climbing. Especially and it's in, in BC, so you know that doesn't come easy, right, Ivy? Yeah, no, people that like, have ridden in BC stim. know that it's it's rugged. It is not chill riding at all. That's going to be a beast. Wow. Yeah. So what Leadville has just under eleven thousand feet of climbing, I think, somewhere around there. Uh, it's like ten thousand somewhere around yeah. ten to eleven. Uh, and it's 104 miles, and this is getting like similar climbing done in 75 miles. And probably uh, granted, it's not at elevation. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Right. Uh, cool. yeah, that's going to be a tough one. So the rules are you must complete the race in 12 hours. Although I've set a goal of completing in around and competing in around nine and a half hours. This is solely off base or seeing what other people have done on that ride. And he says, please tell me if you think this is crazy. I don't think it's crazy. Um, especially I mean, maybe the race itself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's some <laughs> crazy point, stuff happening, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's feasible. I guess it's a better uh, way to say yeah. it. Yeah. Except 4.25 Watts per kilogram. Uh, yeah, I think you could do that. If 4.25 Watts per kilogram, I think that if you were to translate it to Leadville, like sort of thing, and I know it's a different race, it's at altitude, all that other stuff. Uh, but just because it's somewhat comparable from the stats in this regard, um, somebody's getting really angry at me right now that like <laughs> loves Leadville. But um, yeah, I, I think that if you're 4.25 watts per kilogram, you can do Leadville. You can do sub nine at Leadville, I think. Um, so uh, looking at that with uh, significantly less distance, and I know that the terrain is a bit tougher, though, I think that that puts you in somewhere around there. So that makes sense. So this question is in two parts, and this will relate to lots of folks. We're going to tie it in, not just to Chase doing the Merit Crown there in BC. I'm currently completing the marathon cross-country low-volume plan with three days of strength training. And keep in mind that Chase is coming from an enduro background to cross-country. This is important to to remember. So doing three days of strength training with a low-volume plan. So that's three to four days of training on the low-volume plan. I've been doing this schedule for about four years now. 
meaning not that specific plan, but that specific training schedule of three days strength, three days on the bike. My work schedule and family requirements require me to complete my Wednesday and every second Friday ride mentions that he gets every second Friday off at 4 a.m. with others being completed in the like typical early morning hours if on the trainer or during the middle of the day when the kids are napping. So for days when I have more time, I've been replacing the 60 minute trainer road ride with a 90 minute ride. Here's the questions. What's the best way to prepare for for a nine and a half hour race with my schedule? Should I remove a day of strength training and replace with a ride? Should I stay with what I am doing and continue to slowly increase my longer rides to 120 minutes and beyond? Or should I do all of the above? Should I do none of the above? Am I overthinking everything? And yes, of course you are. And that's why you're awesome. So welcome to it. (laughs) That's why why you're on the Trainer Road podcast. (laughs) Indeed. That's what we do. All of us cyclists, right? Yeah. Um, Let's just uh, go into this part first. I think that he should drop one, at least one of the strength training days. Like Ryan, you just mentioned that you do like one to two typically. I think it's a lot. Yeah, that's a ton. That's, um, there's a big tax that goes along with that too. Um, that might be pretty asymmetrical and thinking about what you'll gain in terms of trying to be a marathon XC racer versus, um, what it would gain for you to do more training. Yeah. Yeah. More, uh, yeah. More bike specific stuff. I, I mean, I guess if you, if you've been doing three days a week in the gym for, for four years, it's not going to, you're not going to lose anything by just going two days. You'll just maintain what you have already built. Um, and being able to have that extra day pedaling since that's what you'll be doing for nine hours. It would be valuable to, even if it's just an extra hour a week, that that will add up in the time between between now and and when you are doing the event. Yeah, I agree with that, and and also the question of extending those rides <clears throat> to a bit longer when you do have time. Absolutely. I don't know if I'd extend like the high intensity rides. Like if you have a VO two max or a threshold or something like that, I'm not sure it'd be good to like extend those ones to as to 120 minutes, considering everything else you have going on in your life chase with the family and a job and strength training. Instead, I would look to extend the tempo and below workouts, the tempo and endurance workouts, uh, if you can to a bit longer, Nate famously, uh, famously, I say famously, at least in the, on our podcast did Leadville on two hour rides. Basically, uh, he did a lot of like two hour sweet spot rides in particular and like tempo rides that had him or like <coughs> threshold rides. And that had him riding at you know, pretty high percentages. And when you think about what that's actually doing to your energy system of the aerobic energy system in particular, that's a lot of very productive work. And it makes it so that you're good at maintaining a lower percentage of that for a much longer time. Um, I ruined Nate's race because I gave him a hydration pack full of Martin that was like hot, not lukewarm, but like hot. And <laughs> he like, I think he like threw it off and somebody just got a free pack uh, going up power line because he was oh so gosh. disgusted with it. And then he blew up, then he blew to pieces coming home. Poor guy. Um, so, uh, but anyways, I, I think it's absolutely possible. I did Leadville and I think that the longest ride I did before Leadville and I went eight, 17, something like that, uh, something at Leadville and at eight seventeen, I think the longest ride I did before then was three hours. Uh, and that was one ride that I went outside cause I was trying to test like a lot of equipment, 
but almost everything before that was like 90 minute rides uh, that I did on the trainer. Cause that's just what I had for time. So this is such a common question though, too, while athletes are getting ready for really big gravel events also in, or fondos that they don't believe or understand that you can prepare for those events without doing that actual whole, you know, mm-hmm. time of the event in your training. You don't have to, um, it's science. You don't gotta, yeah, you don't have to. <laughs> I think it's because cycling is a bit weird, like, um, in this regard, like cyclists spend a lot of time training because it's low impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go to like the sport of running as like a proxy for this world-class marathon runners don't often run 26 miles in, like continuously in training. And they don't often run more than that. I, you know, I'm not going to say they never do, but, uh, cause I'm sure somebody does, but they very rarely do. <clears throat> Um, <clears throat> granted those are impact sports, but in cycling, we see pro training. So transparently, like we get to see and hear about it all the time and pros have a lot of time. So they ride really long. And then when they do these long events, there's this natural assumption in our mind that, oh, they're better prepared for that because they ride that long. And while you could argue that in some cases, really that's that just riding long, isn't preparing them best for the event. It's training the energy systems they are going to use on that day is what really helps them. So mm-hmm. that's a common one. Um, the next one, uh, that, that asks the question here, Ryan says, I have no idea how to pace a race of this magnitude. What are some basic items to consider? And chase shares his specific example for context. I do own a power meter on my race bike and a heart rate monitor. The only thoughts I've had are to consume at least a hundred grams of an hour of carbs as you can drop off nutrition bags at the feed stations. Good on you for thinking ahead to that. And heck, if you can push North of that chase, like you do a lot of strength training. I don't know. You might be like really strong and have a lot of muscle mass and you'll burn through a lot of stuff. Uh, so, you know, if you can push North of that, even I can, I I'd encourage it, but what do you think about pacing Ryan? Um, on this sort of, I'm the wrong guy to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you say that? (laughs) Uh, I'm still figuring out the whole pacing thing. I feel like coming from XCO from like cross country racing to, to this really long stuff. uh, I'm getting there, but I think it's hard to not get caught up in with what other people are doing in the race they have their they maybe they know maybe they don't know what they can do for for nine hours but i think with a power meter and heart rate monitor you can definitely kind of reel it in a little bit and and know or have have a goal of this is what i can do for it could even be something this is what i can do for four hours because what you can do for four hours and what you can do for eight hours is probably pretty similar mm-hmm. as far as intensity and power goes. It's um, kind of crazy to think of that, but it's true. It's like, but, yeah, it's pretty wild. And I maybe at the, at the top end or top level pros. Yeah. You can ride harder for four hours than you can for nine, but it's still not a huge gap mm-hmm. in, in power numbers for that. And so I think finding, finding something that you would be comfortable doing for, for that long, sometimes you have to go harder because the climb's steep or it's technical. You have to surge above what you want to do, but just making sure that you, that you 
fuel when you can, when you can breathe. Um, mm-hmm. And on that note with, I know you guys have, have talked about it a lot on the podcast, but fueling with a hundred grams of carb an hour, you have to train that as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can't <laughs> so, just show up and do it. <laughs> yeah. If, if you do have a longer two hour or three hour ride training ride to, to plan on using what you are planning to use in the race. Cause you'll know within, you'll know within two or three hours, whether your stomach can handle it or not. Like you'll probably yeah. know in the first hour. Um, and I encourage you to go on the short rides, like yeah, short uh, rides. train at that. And then like Ryan said, like always train at that and then f- see how it, see how the results unfold on those longer rides for sure. Yeah, definitely. And, and well, maybe starting, if you don't do that already starting at 70 grams an hour, for a week, then bump it up to 80, then 90. It's, it's really hard on your guts to go straight to a hundred grams of carbon hour. You see it, see that much in a water bottle and you're like, it's a lot of sugar. Yeah. It's a ton. <laughs> it's kind of <Yeah>. gross. <laughs> but, well, I'm looking at the course, uh, the profile yeah. and the route and just feeling traumatized. This and, <laughs> and I feel like I do have a uh, pacing strategy after looking at this, which is um, simply to just never feel like you're going in the red. There's like yeah. so much climbing and these descents look so gnarly um, that if I feel like it'd be easy to, when you have all these like shorter climbs in the beginning in the first like 20 miles, to feel, feel strong and feel like you want to like take a crack at it early in the race that could totally hose you later, especially with these really tricky descents. Like you can lose a lot of time on a technical descent by being tired and feeling like you have to ease off and play it safe to make sure you don't crash or hurt yourself if you get too far in the red. And that's such a weird way to pace to feel like you're never really going all out when you know that you're racing. But, um, it seems like that could be in terms of pacing to make sure you're not fatigued at the end, but also in terms of like safety, it seems like the right move to just like play it cool in this race. A hundred percent. What do you think, John? Yeah. Cause the winners like of this race are going to, and I don't know, you may be a winner of this race chase. I don't know, but so this varies, but the winners are going to go out and they're going to push hard, right? Everybody else that isn't in the battle for the win, the smartest way for them to go about this race is likely just because there's probably a fitness differential here. Um, the smartest way for them to go about this race is to, like Ivy said, not feel like you're pushing hard and it's going to feel really boring until the end. Uh, looking at this course profile, Oh, there's two, there's one extremely steep climb once they get like 55 miles in. And then it ends with, uh, not ends with, but there's a really hard climb after that too. Those climbs, I promise you that the easy effort, whatever it was once easy is now going to not feel easy anymore. So your goal should be for things not to feel hard until that, that 55 mile mark. And that's when, you know, not because you're lifting the effort, but because you're just maintaining it, it should be hard then just uh, based out of fatigue. So yeah, I agree. And safety is paramount. I think I don't remember because of the concussion was so bad, but I think that that's why I was just completely blown at single track six when I did it. Um, and I'm sure that's why I made a mistake, you know, is because I was too fatigued and, and worn out. So 
that's why I'm switching to a bike with more travel for next year and a bit more comfort for a single track six, because I know I'm probably going to be boxed again. Uh, <laughs> and hopefully I don't have a scary situation <laughs> again. So yeah, uh, you can't, Ryan, you probably won't win the race right there in those sections, but you could definitely lose it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. Well said Ivy. Ryan, it's been fun to have you on the podcast, man. Where can people get in touch with you and follow follow along? I am. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. We've been talking about this for <laughs> a long time now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's been awesome. Um, you can find me at Ryan Standwich on Instagram and YouTube. Actually, I have the, the cooking shows are on YouTube at Ryan nice. Sandwich. <laughs> All the, the historical cooking shows um, oh, and sweet. MTB Cribs. <laughs> yeah, and MTB uh, Ryan puts out great content if you don't know already. Yeah. And I think that's, that's it. Um, cool. Rocket Sloth Co. for the the rocket sloth hats and t-shirts and stickers been on the, mm-hmm. on the website. We're the working original on mountain some, biking is the spirit of gravel shirt comes from there. So there's a couple shirts left of those Ooh. as well. And like mediums, Hurry. I think, but we're going to yeah, sell those out real fast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I've got some more ideas for, uh, stirring stirring the gravel pot a little bit nice <laughs> so hopefully you have something with feed zones on it that would be fantastic so feed zones yeah. suspension forks yeah arrow bars. it's <laughs> endless <laughs> what you can do with, with the gravel they will complain uh, so it's endless yeah that's yep. the truth well it's been awesome to have you ivy thanks so much appreciate it thank you uh if uh, anybody here is listening to this go follow ivy on instagram follow trainer road on instagram and go to trainerroad.com, sign up and get faster. It's exciting. This season is going to be great. We're making great progress on workout levels V2, which basically just means that we'll be able to quantify your outside workouts. Like they've never been quantified before with the power of AI. It's going to be really cool. Uh, exciting stuff. So go sign up now, uh, go check it out and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye.